you would take out your Bibles, open them up with me to the book of Romans in chapter 10. The book of Romans in chapter 10. As once again we open up this nuclear reactor we call the Word of God. I think sometimes we forget how powerful this book is that we are looking at together. And I certainly pray by God's Spirit it will be powerful for us this morning. I wonder, what are your favorite hymns? Uh, If you had to write down today, and by the way, I encourage you to do this. If you had to write down today the songs that you want to be sung at your funeral, what would be the songs that you would choose? A second question, as you think about your favorite hymns, what are they largely about? What are the themes of those hymns that make them precious to you? So lately I've been really loving the hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds in a Believer's Ear. And I love it because through the verses of that hymn, it talks about Christ and how he is everything our souls need and could ever need. When we look back over Christian history, we find that there is another theme that many Christians have loved to sing about. It's one of the themes that comes up again and again, especially in the older hymns. Christians of the past loved singing about how Jesus had set them free from the law. Does that get you excited? In our day, people think very little of the law of God. Uh, We live in a society that does not regard the law of God very highly. And therefore, we don't tend to feel the weight of having God's law stand against us. Having God's law condemning us before God. And so it's no wonder that many of these older hymns are no longer sung or at least not sung with the same gusto as Christians in the past. But Christians in the past did hold the law of God in high regard, and therefore they knew that having their sins forgiven was an incredible and amazing and astounding gift. And so they sang about it. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. Why? He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood and brought us nigh to God. Or perhaps you know this one. Free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus hath bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law, bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Or, one more, a part of a hymn written by William Cooper. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice, Changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. As for the Christians of old and for us still today, the news that we are now dead to the law, free from the law, no longer under its condemnation, 
should thrill us. We need not carry the heavy burden of trying to earn God's favor. We are freely forgiven through Jesus Christ, and He is our righteousness. He is our fulfillment of the law before God. This is why Romans 10 verse 4 should be a verse that makes you want to sing and dance. Romans 10.4, when understood rightly, is a wonderful verse. Now, it has been abused. It has been misused to say things Paul never intended it to say. But when it is understood rightly, Romans 10 verse 4 is a gospel verse. It's the kind of verse that gets the songwriters writing more hymns of praise. That's the kind of verse it is. And so I hope as we look at it, you will feel the glory of the good news of this verse. But to get it in its context, let's read verses 1 through 4. So Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now as we look at this passage, I am assuming a few things about you. I'm assuming that you want to go to heaven. I am assuming that you want to be in God's favor and that you want to have God's abundant blessings and that you don't want to be under God's curse. And I'm assuming that you understand that this is more important than anything else going on in your life right now. Because in the blink of an eye, your life as you know it could end. And on that day, whether it's today or 60 years from now, whenever that day comes, the only issue that will matter then will be this one. Am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? Is God my God? Am I saved? Now we know what God requires for us to go to heaven. Because we've seen it again and again and again in this book of Romans. The requirement to get into heaven is righteousness. Everybody say it. Say righteousness. Righteousness. Jesus said it more clearly than anyone when he said, You then must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Heaven is a holy place. It's a wonderful place. It's a good place. But if you go to heaven and you're not holy, if you go to heaven and you're not good through and through, you ruin heaven. Heaven isn't heaven anymore if you go there in your sinfulness. And so the only way to get to heaven is to be perfect, pure, blameless, righteous. 
So how do we become righteous? We, we want to go to heaven. We want to be with God. We don't want hell. We don't want the curse. How do we become righteous? And sadly, many, many people turn to the law instead of the gospel for this purpose. God has revealed to us what is good. God has revealed to us what is evil. And therefore, we try to obey God's commands in order to achieve our own righteousness. We start using the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, and we start putting together our own resume for God, hoping that somehow it will be good enough that we can make it in. Mount Hermon, there are right ways to use the law of God. And there are wrong ways to use the law of God. Now to help us make sure we get this, let me quickly remind you of the three proper uses of the law. Okay, So I want to remind you that there are three ways that the law of God continues to serve us and to help us. There are three right ways to use the law of God and to use the commandments that we find in the Bible. So here they are. Number one, the first great use of the law is what we call the civil use. So everybody say civil. Okay, God's laws, when used in a civil way, help curb wickedness in a nation. So it is no accident that the laws of the nations of the world often reflect the very moral law of God, especially the second table of the Ten Commandments. Most nations have laws against theft, against murder, against at least certain types of sexual immorality, against perjury. And the reason that most nations have these laws, these laws that ultimately come from God, written into their national law books and their justice systems, is these laws help keep societies from becoming as wicked as they could be. We should be glad for the civil use of the law, and we should be glad that even pagan nations have the law of God so written on their hearts that they know we need to have laws against murder. That is a gracious gift from God, and it is called the civil use of the law. It is a right and a good use of the moral law of God. Then there's the second great use. This is what we call, this is a big fancy word, the pedagogical use. The pedagogical use. They made fun of me at the conference because I used the word ontological, and I'm still living that down. So let me spell it for you. Pedagogical is P-E-D-A. G-O-G-I-C-A-L. And if you didn't get it, see me afterwards and I'll give it to you. The pedagogical use of the law is simply a fancy way of saying the law serves us as a teacher. Right? Pedagogy is a fancy word that refers to teaching. So I talked to a fellow this week. He's in the master's program at the University of Tennessee for piano pedagogy. He's getting his master's degree in teaching piano at a college level right that's pedagogy so the pedagogical use of the law is the law serving us as a teacher how does the law serve us as a teacher well mainly the law helps us to see our sinfulness and our need for salvation 
This is why we must have the law before we have the gospel. The law teaches us why we need salvation. The gospel teaches us how to have it. If we haven't learned the lesson of the law, that I'm a sinner and that I'm in deep trouble before a holy God and that I need salvation, if I haven't learned the deep lessons of the law, I won't give a flip about the good news of the gospel. Christ crucified means nothing to a person who hasn't come to grips with his own guiltiness before Almighty God. And what we have seen in Romans 7 and what we saw at the end of Romans 9 is that this was one great reason why God gave the law to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. The law was meant to convict them. The law was meant to help them see their sins and then to lead them to Christ. And I would simply ask you this if you're a Christian. Didn't that happen to you? Isn't that what the law did in your life to bring you to Jesus? Didn't you first feel the law's conviction? And didn't you first know of your guiltiness before God and that's what prepped you and made you know I need Jesus? In his book, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, written by John Bunyan, we have this main character, Christian, and his friend, Faithful. And Christian and Faithful are talking about this man that they met who had influenced them. And Christian and Faithful had met a man whose name was Law. And Christian says to Faithful, It was he who did bind my heavy burden upon me. And Faithful responds, I had it not been for him. We had both of us stayed in the city of destruction. Christian says, Then he did us a favor. Faithful goes on to say, I, albeit he did it none too gently. Christian responds, well, at least he played the part of a schoolmaster and he showed us our need. It was he who drove us to the cross. And that's the idea. The law of God drives us to the cross. This is the the pedagogical use. And as for Old Testament Israel, in the Old Testament, it wasn't just the moral aspects of God's law bringing Israel to see their need for Christ, but then they had the ceremonial aspects of the law with the priesthood and the sacrifices, all of this pointing to the solution to their sin problem. Namely, the law helped them see their need, and then the law through the priesthood and the sacrifices was showing them a Messiah is coming who is the solution. So then there's the third right use of the law. And this is what we call the normative use. So everybody say normative. Normative, right? Yes, the normative use. I'm getting you excited. The, the normative use of the law. This is the use in which the law becomes the norm of how Christians are to live. So we've been saved We've come to Christ. We have Jesus as our Savior. We are set free from the law's condemnation. Now how do we use the law in our lives? Well, we use it as a guide from God that helps us see what a life of love looks like. 
That we use the law now, not to try and earn our salvation, but as a way of saying, thank you to God, I love you, and I want to live a life that pleases you and honors you. What does that look like? And then we come to the law of God, and Jesus teaches us, through the commands of the Bible, what a life of obedience looks like, a life of usefulness to God. And it's as our life becomes more and more obedient that we have more and more assurance. I really am God's because I can feel and see the change in my life. All right. So those are the right uses of the law. The civil use, the pedagogical use, the normative use. Here is the problem. Israel was trying to create a fourth use of the law. Israel was trying to use the law in a different way than those three appropriate ways. They were using the law as a checklist of do's and don'ts that if you could do them rightly, would earn you heaven. And using the law to earn heaven is always a misuse of the law. Think about a flathead screwdriver. I can think of several right ways to use a flathead screwdriver. Cleaning your teeth is not one of them. When you take something good and you use it in a wrong way, the consequences can be bad. That's what was happening here. Paul was grieving because his fellow Israelites are taking something good and using it in the wrong way. Why was using the law of God to earn heaven a misuse of the law? Answer, it's a misuse because we are sinners. And we are sinners in our hearts. We sin because we are sinners deep down. If we were not sinful, if we were, if we were good through and through, right? If, if Oprah Winfrey was right and we're all deep down good at heart, then the law really could bring us to heaven. If we really could keep every point of the law, if we really could never steal and never lie and never hate and never be greedy and never be selfish, the law would get us to heaven. We could achieve our own righteousness through the law. But that's not who we are. Our hearts are broken. We have a sinful nature. We cannot fulfill every jot and tittle of God's law. We cannot accomplish righteousness in that way. Jesus did this. The law was a way to perfection for Jesus. Jesus really did accomplish righteousness via the law. He obeyed God's law perfectly. He fulfilled every single aspect of God's law. For Jesus, using the law as a means of meriting God's favor, was right. But for you and me, it will never, ever work. Let me summarize our situation. Here we go. Number one, we want to go to heaven and be with God forever. Words cannot express how wonderful that will be. But number two, the requirement for that great honor of being with God forever in heaven is righteousness. We must be blameless. Number three, if we could keep God's law perfectly, we could obtain righteousness and earn heaven. 
So think about Adam. Had Adam continued to perfectly obey, had Adam never sinned in the garden, Eden would have been his forever. Were we perfect people? The law would be a perfect ladder, and we could climb that ladder straight into heaven's gates. But number four, we're not perfect people. The heart is deceitful above all else, and who can understand it? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then can you who are accustomed to doing evil do good? Romans 3, there is none who does good. No, not one. The Bible is chock full of verses telling us what we don't even need the Bible to tell us because we already know it deep down. We are a long, long ways from being righteous people. We are the opposite. We are an unrighteous people. We are a sinful people. There are things in our hearts that are evil. Number five, God's law stands against us and condemns us. You see, not only is it true that the law can't get us to heaven because of our own sinfulness, but instead of getting us to heaven, the law does the opposite. The law sends us to hell. The law stands against us because we're sinners demanding our condemnation. The law demands that we be punished because of our injustice, because of our wickedness. And number six, there is no hope in ourselves. There is no hope in ourselves. There is nothing we can do, nothing in our power to change this situation, nothing we can do to escape hell, nothing we can do to make our hearts right and not unrighteous, nothing we can do to wipe away the sins we've committed. There is absolutely nothing we can do to go to heaven. This is a problem we cannot fix. And so if God doesn't do something for us, we are forever lost. And so here is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ accomplished righteousness for sinners. Jesus is the second Adam. Adam failed to obey and his sin was our sin because he was our representative in the garden. When Adam became sinful, we all became sinful. But now Christ has come as a second Adam. And he represented every person who will ever call out on him and trust him. And for every person that will ever believe on Jesus, Jesus obeyed the law perfectly on their behalf. And when we believe on Jesus, his righteousness is reckoned, accounted, imputed. Choose your word. His righteousness is given to us and placed on our account. And we are holy in the sight of God. Oh, I'm still a sinner. (laughs) You're still a sinner. But in the eyes of God, if you believe on Christ, you are wearing the righteousness of Christ. And because of the cross... All of the guilt for every sin, past, present, and future is gone. Through Jesus, instead of heading to hell, those who believe on him are on the road to heaven, and they will absolutely get there by his power. Mount Hermon, is this not good news? Is this not the greatest news of all? 
Now, I need to make a clarifying statement. When Paul says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, he is not saying that the Old Testament law no longer has any bearing on our lives. And he is not saying that the commands of the Old Testament no longer matter. In fact, all three proper uses of the law still stand. We still have the civil use. We still have all of these things. What Paul means is that Christ is the end of the law as a means to obtaining righteousness before God. Let me say it again because people get this verse wrong. What Paul means in verse 4 is that Christ is the end of the law as a means to obtaining righteousness before God. We are free from the law. We are free from the covenant of works, which goes all the way back to Genesis 2, where God said to Adam, obey me perfectly, you get paradise, disobey me, you lose paradise. We are free from that. Free from that. Now we are in what we call the covenant of grace. Trust me, and I will be everything you need for you to have heaven. We are saved by grace. But it doesn't mean that we're done with the law. It doesn't mean we throw the law out with the trash. Christ is the end of the law as a covenant of works, but in the covenant of grace in which we live, the law continues to have usefulness. The civil use continues. The pedagogical use continues even after we we come to Christ. Think about this. As we still as Christians take our thoughts and our words and our attitudes and our deeds and set them up next to the Ten Commandments, we see again how deeply needful of Christ we are and we love Him all the more and we're thankful all the more for His salvation and we find ourselves wanting to repent all the more. We don't stop using the law once we come to Christ. We still use it because we need to be driven to Christ every day. Amen? We need Christ every moment. And if we don't use the law of God, Christ will become less precious to us and less precious to us and less precious to us. And we won't care for Christ anymore if we lose the law of God. And the normative use continues. The moral aspects of the Old Testament law continue because that's God's very character. right? The moral law is a reflection of who God is and He never changes. So it's not like we come to Christ and then we can put away all those commands. No, we put away all those commands as a means of earning righteousness. But we keep all those commands as a way of knowing what it looks like to love God and love your neighbor. Don't you want to love God? Don't you want to love your neighbor? The Bible is a gift of commands that show you here is what that looks like. We should still be able to say with David in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, Never, never let us despise the law of God. It is the symptom of an ignorant ministry and an unhealthy state of religion when the law is lightly esteemed. The true Christian delights in God's law. And so we should. But even more, we should rejoice in the gospel. 
And one of the reasons that this verse is so wonderful is it reminds us that our salvation does not depend on us at all. Our salvation depends entirely on Christ. Our identity as children of God, our identity as heaven-bound, forgiven people of God is rock-solid because Jesus Christ is rock-solid. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never cease to be our righteousness before God. Mount Hermon, this is, I cannot stress how important this is. When you think about who you are, your identity, who am I? This must be first and foremost. I am not first and foremost a husband and dad. I am not first and foremost a pastor or a preacher. I am first and foremost a blood-bought child of God with heaven in my future, my sins forgiven, knowing that one day I will be in the presence of God forever. That's who I am. That must be my chief identity, and it must be yours as a Christian. How can I count on it? Because my Savior will never fail me. In the providence of God, I could cease to be a husband. I could cease to be a father. In the providence of God, I could lose my role as a pastor and as a preacher. But because of Jesus Christ, I will never cease to be a blood-bought, heaven-bound child of God. Some of you probably know of Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey is a professional fighter. And I'm not going to get into the question of professional women fighters right now but she's a she's a a female professional fighter and back in the fall ronda rousey was was headline news Uh, i heard her on the radio with mike and mike in the morning if any of you listen to mike and mike on espn so they were interviewing her and she was being hailed as this really amazing female fighter and this was all leading up to her big primetime fight with a lady named Holly Holm. This happened back in November. And you may know what happened. To almost everybody's surprise, Ronda Rousey was defeated in the fight. And she wasn't just defeated, she was soundly defeated. After months of hype, about how great a fighter she was after she had done the circuit of TV shows and radio shows and she was growing in popularity and then the fight happened and there she was bleeding and bruised and broken. And a couple of weeks ago, Ronda Rousey was on the Ellen DeGeneres show and she gave a testimony of how she felt after her fight. She said, honestly, my thought I was in the medical room, I was down in the corner, and I was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? She said, I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one gives a bleep about me anymore without this. Do you hear what Rhonda was saying? Her problem wasn't just that she couldn't live up to the hype. Her problem wasn't just that she failed in a fight. The much bigger problem was that this had become her identity. 
This was who she was and how she understood herself. She thought she was this great fighter. And when suddenly that illusion came tumbling to the ground, she did not know who she was anymore. She lost her purpose in life. She contemplated suicide. She thought of herself as nothing. In her mind, everything had been built on her identity as a fighter. And when that left her, it left her broken. In the same way, we must be careful that we do not let anything else define our identity except the gospel. Every other role you have in your life could disappear. Skills, talents, abilities, jobs, relationships, these could go away. These could fail. And if your identity is completely wrapped up in those things, then if those things are gone, you will find yourself broken like Ronda Rousey. But here's the good news of the gospel. If I am in Christ then even if I lose everything, just like Job, if I lose everything, and even if I mess up in some super big-time ways, nevertheless, in Christ, my status as a heaven-bound, beloved child of God stays the same. Because whatever happens in my life, Christ has not changed. My righteousness before God has not changed. Where do you go when you're having a hard week? Where do you go when you're frustrated or disappointed? I really believe this is why so many people are struggling with pornography in our culture. I believe it's something that people are turning to, to try and find a temporary balm for a hurting soul. Or for many others, it's alcohol. In the Bible, wine is something you use when you're rejoicing. Wine is something that's used in celebration. But in our culture, people use it when they've had a bad day. And when you start turning to alcohol to help soothe you and make you feel better, it can get a hold of you and it can wreck your life. Where do we turn when we're hurting and broken? There is only one place to turn. To the promises of the gospel and who we are in Jesus Christ. The sign above the oracle at Delphi in ancient Greece had two words, know thyself. When you know yourself, who do you know? Who are you? Can you say, I am a Christian? Christ is my all in all. Unless that's not who you are. (laughs) Dear friend, if you haven't come to Jesus for salvation, then your only hope of going to heaven and being with God forever is that somehow you can get there in your own strength. And that is no grounds for hope. If your plan for getting to heaven is being better than your next door neighbor, that is no plan. Because the standard is you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The only way, the only door to heaven, the only road that will get you there is Jesus Christ. And He calls you to come just as you are. Don't try and remove your guilt. 
Don't try and hide your brokenness. The Gospel says run to Jesus Christ in all of your messiness. Run to Him in prayer. Confess your sins to Him and ask Him to save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Entrust your soul to Jesus Christ. Show it through baptism and membership and a life of obedience. But even those things, baptism, membership, a life of obedience, these are not attempts to merit the love of God. These are an act of worship saying, thank you for loving me and making me your child through Jesus Christ. The moment you believe on Christ, you are saved and you are saved forever. Dear friend, what would keep you from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? I pray that nothing would and that you would believe on him and that you would be able to say that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for you because Christ is your all in all. Let's pray.